0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. As the special counsel Robert Mueller reportedly wraps up his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, Many wonder what will happen when the report is completed. If the attorney general releases the report, might the president try to block its release by invoking executive privilege? What is the scope and history of executive privilege? Does it apply to pre-presidential conduct? Does it apply to civil suits? All of these important constitutional questions are the ones we'll be discussing on today's podcast on executive privilege and the Constitution. And here to discuss these crucial questions are two of America's leading scholars of presidential power, two great friends of the We The People podcast. John Yoo is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at Berkeley Law School, where he is also the director of the Korea Law Center, the California Constitution Center, and the Program in Public Law and Policy. John, thank you so much for joining us again.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Great to be with you.
0: And Steve Loddick is the A. Dalton Cross professor in law at the University of Texas School of Law. He is also CNN Supreme Court analyst, co-editor-in-chief of the blog Just Security, and co-host of the National Security Law Podcast. Steve, it's great to have you with us.
2: Thanks, Jeff. Great to be back with you.
0: Let's start with the basic question. What is executive privilege? How is it rooted in the Constitution? And how have past presidents invoked it. Uh, John, why don't you start us off? Sure, Jeff.
1: Uh, Executive privilege refers to the idea that the president uh, and perhaps the executive branch as a whole have a right to keep confidential its meetings and records from the other branches of government, either from a lawsuit or from a congressional subpoena. It was really claimed first by Thomas Jefferson during the Aaron Burr treason trial, the great uh, controversy where Aaron Burr actually tried to get part of the United States to detach itself in Louisiana and make himself king, and he was arrested and brought back, and he was put on trial. And the trial judge was John Marshall, the great Chief Justice, who you've talked about a lot before, Jeff. And John Marshall wanted evidence that Burr claimed he needed to prove his innocence about his discussions with Jefferson, and Jefferson claimed executive privilege. Ever since then, presidents have claimed it, have withheld information, but the Supreme Court didn't really bless the idea until the Watergate tapes case, right, U.S. versus Nixon versus the United States, where the court actually said that President Nixon had to turn over his tapes of his own conversations to a court, but said also that there was some constitutional right of the president to withhold information when it came to matters like uh, national security, law enforcement, diplomacy. But for everything else, the court was very vague and said, uh, you know, there'd be kind of a balancing test where we'll ask about the need of the other branch for the right for the president for secrecy. And because of that, we're still, kind I think, in a vague morass about executive privilege whenever fights like a bar report come up or forcing people to testify before Congress come up.
0: Steve, uh, your thoughts about the history of executive privilege and tell us more about the U.S. versus Nixon case, which recognized both a deliberative process privilege and a presidential communications privilege. What's the difference between them and how has that played out?
2: Sure. I mean, I think John John's exactly right to stress just how infrequently the Supreme Court—really, the courts in general, Jeff, have actually had to flesh out what the executive privilege is, what it does and doesn't protect— and part of that's because most fights over executive privilege happen outside the courts and really are, are resolved in most cases between Congress and the executive branch. We often see you know, complicated negotiations where the executive branch agrees to hand over. Some of what Congress is seeking instead of all of it. Um, Nixon, as John mentions, is the first time the court recognizes the privilege. And I think it's, it's pretty much the consensus that Nixon was very much a compromise opinion where – in order to preserve the unanimity of the justices, um, the more progressive justices agreed to recognize executive privilege and trace it to Article II of the Constitution in exchange for the more conservative justices agreeing to hold that it was only a qualified privilege, that it could be overcome in particular cases, and that indeed, in the context of the special prosecutor's subpoena for the Watergate tapes, that it actually was overcome in that context. Um, The D.C. Circuit, Jeff, I think has really the principal judicial interpreter of executive privilege given that the Supreme Court hasn't subsequently weighed in. And the the DC Circuit recognizes, as you say, two species, executive communications basically where you've got um, specific communications between the president and one of his uh, officers, one of his staffers, one of his subordinates, where the privilege is protecting the confidentiality of the communication itself. And then something more akin to the deliberative process privilege, where it's not about the specific words out of the president's mouth, but rather about the sort of mechanics by which the executive branch arrived at a particular decision. Um, and I think you know understanding the sort of differences there helps to explain some of the case law, where the D.C. Circuit has generally been you know completely willing to recognize the privilege, but also. Um, not sort of always bending over backwards to defer to the privilege where you know the the different presidents have won some cases in the DC circuit and they've lost some. Um, and I think that's a reflection of the Supreme Court really leaving it very much open to interpretation in nineteen seventy
0: four All right, we've put some of the case law on the table. You've both identified from the Nixon case these two categories of presidential communications privilege and the deliberative process privilege. Uh, we learn from Uh, John Baez's primer on executive privilege uh, published in Lawfare in 2017 that there are other uh, privileges including attorney-client communications privilege, the law enforcement information privilege, which piggybacks off of a 1984 uh, Office of Legal Counsel opinion and says that executive privilege extends to ongoing investigations or sensitive techniques, methods or strategies and finally a privilege that uh, John referred to has historical roots, the military, diplomatic, and national security privilege, and that's rooted in uh, Nixon as well. Okay, now let us uh, turn to all of the really important questions that the our, we the people, listeners, and I would love to hear the answers to. Um, the first question is this. If Attorney General Barr decides not to release the Mueller report, can Congress subpoena it? John?
1: This is a obviously the you know the hundred thousand dollar question <laughs> well that's we're why all, i asked well,
0: it yeah we're all
1: you know first we got to find out when that report's coming out because it was about a month ago. And well, so this, is, this is interesting because um it doesn't fall within the presidential communication privilege right you're right jeff and Steve, right to say the core of the privilege is the right of the president to talk to his advisors you know, Mueller, if anything, has never had a chance to talk to Trump however much he wanted to. You know, Trump decided not to sit down for an interview. So that's not involved. So if it's going to be uh, privileged at all, it would have to be uh, under the sort of law enforcement interest that Nixon talks about, uh, not Nixon, the president, Nixon, the case talks about because that's part of the president's article to core responsibilities, uh, but the again the court said but it's going to be balanced against any the right of the other branch and so the uh, the interesting thing is uh, as as steve mentioned if it comes down to these fights between congress and the president the courts really don't get involved much they rarely want to step in they're worried about the president or congress both ignoring them so I think if Trump were to claim privilege, uh, the, what you'll see in the House, because it wouldn't happen in the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, I expect. But in the House, Democrats would use all the things we look at, like oversight, funding, control over legislation. It would, you start having to use political tools, I think, to try to wrench the report free. Now, when it comes down to the politics of it, I, I, I expect Barr, Attorney General Barr will want to. Publish it uh, to release it, and I actually think Trump would be wise to waive the privilege and let it all come out because it's in his interests. I think that Mueller, who I think is a sort of the gold standard of prosecutors, uh, it sounds to me like if he clears Trump, if he doesn't find any collusion, that's great for Trump. Trump should try, Trump should
0: release it, Steve. Um, if the attorney general does decide to release the report, um, taking uh, John's advice and President Trump does invoke executive privilege, how might he fare in court?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's worth stressing, Jeff, that the mechanics are going to matter here. I mean, executive privilege is a shield. It's not a sword. Um, And so, you know, even if the president were to try to assert executive privilege, that wouldn't necessarily stop Congress from, in addition to subpoenaing the report itself, um, subpoenaing special counsel Mueller, subpoenaing other potential individuals um, to come testify. You know, obviously, the president can stop a current executive branch employee from testifying um, before Congress just by saying, you know, if you testify, I'll fire you. Um, It's not actually clear that executive privilege would allow the president to block a former executive branch officer or employee from testifying if that person voluntarily wants to. So, you know, I think we're – there could be a really hard question. If the government purports to withhold the report from Congress, um, a report by the way that's mandated under the special counsel regulation under 28 CFR 600.9, um, there could be a fight um, on the question of whether the report itself that Barr is supposed to provide right, is going to actually be be released. I just think that Congress will have lots of, I mean John mentioned some of the ways Congress could basically incentivize um, release of the report by sort of choking off other executive branch functions. I think there are other ways that Congress can get the exact same information out onto the public record even if it's not the literal physical document that the special counsel ultimately sends to the attorney general.
0: Uh, John, uh, Steve mentioned the possibility of Congress subpoenaing Mueller if Congress subpoenaed Mueller. Could the president block Mueller's testimony by invoking executive privilege? Is
1: this a good question? First, I completely agree that if Barr or Trump refused to release the report and Congress can effectively try to reconstruct the report, they could bring all the same witnesses that Barr had testified and ask them basically the same questions. And they could try to, yeah, as, as you say, get other people who are involved in the investigation to testify, so it's. I think it's always been the practice that the president and the executive branch have claimed uh, the right to block former executive branch officials from uh, testifying about matters which are privileged. The interesting question is more: what would happen if someone defies it? You know, so. For example uh uh, jim comey has testified repeatedly in congress on matters which actually would fall within the direct communication privilege between the president he's you know testified about things actually that he and trump talked about and then he's also testified and spoken in public a lot about internal fbi and justice department discussions and considerations about whether to prosecute and who to investigate these are all the matters that really are the core of the executive privilege um but if trump tried to stop him yeah, the question is, what sanction could Trump pursue or the Trump administration or Justice Department pursue against him? You could probably pursue someone for leaking classified information. But, uh, you know, I assume that uh, the, the Mueller report would be scrubbed of all that. So I don't actually know, you know if Mueller sort of showed up in a hearing and just brought a copy of the report with him and handed it over to Congress, even though it might violate the privilege. Uh, I don't know what the executive branch could actually do to him in terms of a sanction to stop him.
0: Picking up on that, Steve, are there um, any other uh, forms in which Mueller might try to release information about the investigation uh, where Trump could invoke executive privilege uh, to block testimony, interviews and so forth, either by Mueller or by anyone else?
2: I mean, I think, you know, as as John points out, I mean, I think we have plenty of evidence of, you know, former government employees testifying about matters that ought to have come within one of these privileges. And, and Jeff, I think it's important to stress, I mean, we're all fixated for obvious reasons on, you know, the indictments that the special counsel has obtained to date and might still obtain going forward um, and the ultimate recommendations he may or may not make to Congress with regard to the president. I think it's worth keeping in mind that this investigation started as a counterintelligence investigation, not a criminal investigation. And the reason why that matters, at least to me, Jeff, is because separate from the report that special counsel Mueller has to file with the attorney general under 28 CFR 600.8, the special counsel is presumably also going to have to report to the intelligence committees about the findings of the counterintelligence investigation. And I think I I mentioned that because, you know, John mentioned the, the specter of potentially having classified information and national security secrets. I think that's the one place where you would see the strongest, I think, possibility of any opportunity on the part of the executive branch to actually prevent testimony from happening. Um, and yet, I do think that it's quite clear that Mueller's going to have to report in some form to the intelligence committees, even if behind closed doors. I just I can't imagine a court um, holding that executive privilege would allow the president to stop the special counsel from voluntarily complying with a subpoena from a House Intelligence Committee to testify behind closed doors on a matter within the scope of an investigation he carried out pursuant to the executive branch's own regulations. I mean, I you know, I, I just think I think a court's going to be very reluctant. John, John mentioned earlier that courts are reluctant to get in the middle of these disputes in the first place. And I think especially where you have an individual who voluntarily wants to go before Congress and talk to them, um, it's going to be really unlikely in my view, even if the privilege might you know, abstractly protect the content of what the witness is testifying to, that the courts would allow the president to use the privilege as a sword in almost any guise. I mean, the real lever for the privilege historically has been in blocking Involuntary disclosures of documents, um, where the executive branch doesn't want to comply with it, where the where the recipient of a subpoena doesn't want to comply, um, where the where, where the individual in question does want to comply, whether the material might be privileged or not, you know, unless as John says, it's the, it's a violation of the Espionage Act for disclosing national security secrets. I just don't see the president successfully stopping it.
0: Okay, uh, if I hear you right, both of you have uh, suggested that it would be hard successfully to invoke executive privilege to block. Voluntary testimony, let's talk about involuntary testimony. Imagine that Congress in a House obstruction of justice inquiry or another inquiry subpoenaed uh, presidential records such as notes from the president's Helsinki meetings with uh, President Putin. Uh, John, you've suggested that a subpoena for that information would not be justified. There's no justification that Congress or another branch can throw up which would allow the overcome of the privilege in this kind of case, and this invocation of executive privilege you said would be like stabbing a dagger into the presidency. Tell us uh, why you believe that to be the case. Well, this
1: you know, the hypothetical it may not be so hypothetical before long, but the hypothetical you you toss out would really bring the direct clash of constitutional uh, interest. To, to, directly into conflict. So that if you take uh, Nixon's description of executive privilege seriously, then the president, uh, presently di- directly talking uh, to heads of other countries, it, not put aside to you know his or her cabinet members, you would think that would be the core of executive privilege. Remember the point of it was so that the president can communicate freely, can discuss things candidly, uh, which the court word would be Inhibited and harmed, it would harm presidential decision making if everything could just immediately be brought out into the public. So it seems to me the the presidential interest in confidentiality would be really at its height when it comes to things like discussions with Putin or other foreign leaders. Uh, here, you know, Congress could though say, look, uh, there's a number of our <clears throat> excuse me, number of constitutional functions we are involved with where we need to know that information, too. You could go, you know, start as innocently as we want to decide how much funding we have to provide to the State Department or what we want to do with uh, appointments to Russia uh, or what we want to do with foreign policy and sanctions against uh, Russia and other countries. But make it even harder, suppose Congress says, We need to know this information because we want to know whether to impeach the president. Suppose some people in Congress think that President Trump is somehow indebted to or swayed by President Putin uh, inappropriately. Then Congress would say, look, we need to get this information to carry out our function to uh, investigate and decide whether to impeach a sitting president. I – Personally, if I were trying to guess what the Supreme Court would do, assuming it got to the courts, I don't think the court would, even uh, in a case like that, narrow executive privilege so far that presidents can't speak candidly and secretly with the heads of other countries. Because I think if they took that step, then I think there really isn't really any executive privilege left.
0: Uh, Steve, uh, same question to you. If Congress subpoenaed presidential records like the notes from President Trump's Helsinki meeting with President Putin, do you think that an executive privilege uh, should or would succeed or not?
2: You know, I, I think I generally share John's instinct that you know the president's personal private communications with foreign leaders ought to be at the heartland of executive privilege. Jeff, I would just stress that, you know, the executive privilege the Supreme Court recognized in Nixon is not an absolute privilege. And what qualifies it is not the specific um, context of the communication, but rather the, the interest of the party seeking to uncover it, right? That is to say, in Nixon itself, it was the interest of the special prosecutor in having access to potentially, you know, inculpatory evidence against the seven criminal defendants in the Watergate case. Um, we've never seen a case, Jeff, where courts have been faced with, you know, confronting a facially plausible, facially valid executive privilege assertion, Um, in juxtaposition with a claim from Congress that it's, you know, pursuing impeachment inquiries into the president. And I think we'd have to come to that. I mean, I think if it was just, you know, we want to know what happened in Helsinki so that we know how to fund the State Department, I think courts would balk at that and say, no, that's not a sufficiently compelling justification to override the privilege. If instead Congress has some reason to believe that, you know, access to this information would provide material evidence in an impeachment inquiry – I think that's a much closer question. And part of why I think that's a much closer question is because, you know, there are plenty of of folks out there, and and I I don't think I'm speaking out of school to say that John is one of them, um, who think there are real constitutional limits on the ability of a sitting president to be indicted and that the real mechanism for going after a president, you know, who we believe is no longer fit for office is impeachment. Well, if you believe that, then it seems to me you ought to also believe that the Constitution allows Congress to conduct meaningful impeachment investigations. That's not to say a court would rule for, say, the House Judiciary Committee in a dispute over uh, a subpoena for the president you know for the notes of the Helsinki conversation it's just to say that if that were where if that were the argument if the argument were we have you know we're we're moving down the track in an impeachment inquiry we already have some evidence we think that this evidence will corroborate the evidence we already have i, I, I think it's a closer case um, at least than then I, then I thought I heard John to say. And, I, and I'm not sure it's so obvious that in the context of a qualified claim of privilege, the courts would automatically defer to the president in that context.
0: We the people will be back after these messages. If you love passionate debate based in reason and fact, and I know you do because you're a listener of We the People, you should check out Intelligence Squared US. Intelligence Squared is one of the nation's leading dedicated debate series and a great partner of the National Constitution Center. In every episode, Intelligence Squared brings together the smartest thinkers on topics to dissect the issues with in-depth analysis. Intelligence Squared does this because as a nonprofit, its mission is to combat toxic partisanship and restore civility and reason in American public life. So if you want to continue to hear balanced, substantive debate on issues ranging from the global financial system to whether or not we should try to bring back extinct creatures, subscribe to Intelligence Squared US. That podcast is available anywhere you listen. Well, let's explore this question of the scope of the privilege in a potential impeachment or obstruction investigation. Uh, John, in what time period can the president claim executive privilege? Is it just for his presidential conduct or does it cover pre-presidential conduct? I'll say that our crack constitutional content team has found one district court case – uh, from Kansas in 2017 saying that a document created by Chris Kobach to share with then president-elect Donald Trump was not covered by executive privilege since Nixon didn't extend the privilege to presidents-elect, but the Supreme Court is not definitively ruled on this question. So what are your views about the timeframe in which executive privilege can cover? You know, I think uh,
1: privilege and impeachment, they kind of go together. So at least – and again, as, as you pointed, this has really never been litigated with presidents. It has kind of been litigated a little bit with judges, uh, but not presidents. Uh, so I would think, just looking at the language of the Constitution and the federal Papers uh, commentary about it, that a person, while they're president, for actions they took as president, the, they can't be prosecuted or indicted while they're still in office. They can only be impeached. On the other hand, the executive privilege only applies, I think, to things that the president does and says while he or she's president. So for a lot of the things that uh, people have been talking about in the press and that you mentioned a little bit of, these uh, congressional investigations into the Trump organization and payoffs and Michael Cohen. And he just goes on and on and on. All these scandals and grifters and all that stuff. To the extent they took place before uh, President Donald Trump took the oath of office, I don't think he gets executive privilege for any of that. Plus, uh, I don't think he can be impeached on the basis of anything for that kind of conduct. But I think he could be prosecuted for that. Now, uh, the federalist peers actually talk about well, what happens if there's a sitting president? And he's being prosecuted. And we went through some of this, Jeff. You remember, we went through some of this with uh, President Clinton.
0: We you know, sure did. <laughs> yeah,
1: we went through a lot of it with President Clinton. We can't, it's hard to forget. Yes. Okay, so there's this case, Clinton versus Jones, right? This is a investigation of President Clinton for conduct before he was president. And the court says that it has to continue to go forward, try to schedule it, guys, <laughs> you know, so that trial judges, so that it doesn't interfere with Clinton's conduct of the office. But the court refused to... To block a prosecution or a civil suit against the president for things he did before he's president I said you really don't have any kind of privileges there if it's if people want to investigate and indict a president for things he or she did as president the federalist papers talk about uh, written by Alexander hamilton talks about well what you do is you impeach the president you remove the president and then the president loses whatever immunity he or she has and can be then Punished and, prosec- punished and prosecuted and punished for their actions. And I think that – but you're right, Jeff, to draw the line at things before your president are treated very differently than what you do and how the system treats you
0: while you're president. Steve, same question to you. Uh, do you believe that executive privilege covers pre-presidential conduct or not?
2: Yeah, no, I don't. And I think I think John really sort of hit the nail on, on the head as to why. I, I would just stress, you know, Nixon itself, the Supreme Court talks about the privilege running to the office. Well, obviously, a president doesn't hold the office until he's inaugurated, until he's sworn in. And before that, you know, he may – it may be inevitable that he's going to be the president, but he's not the president for purposes of Article 2. You know, I, I think it's it's – consistent actually, with the view of the executive branch as you know being sort of controlled from the top by a unitary officer, that Jeff, there can only be one executive at a time. Um, and so until and unless you know the prior president, the the incumbent president, is out of office, I don't think privilege should attach to anything that a president elect does, at least not the constitutional privilege recognized in Nixon. Now, Jeff, if I may, I do think that you know there's a worthwhile conversation to have. … about whether Congress ought to by statute um, invest the president-elect with certain privileges and, res- and, immu- and immunities and responsibilities um, by of being the president-elect as Congress has over the last 15, 20 years increasingly formalized … You know, the functions of the president-elect, the existence of a formal transition team, the the domain ptt.gov. We had this conversation in the context of the Logan Act and whether, you know, the incoming administration is allowed to conduct what's effectively foreign policy. Um, even if that foreign policy is you know, in contrast to the foreign policy of the current administration because it's clear that in two or three weeks they're going to be the administration, my own view is that the answer ought to be yes but not as a matter of constitutional interpretation, that Congress really ought to think carefully about how to govern the transition. And maybe one of the things to think about is whether it's some kind of quasi-executive privilege ought to cover the president-elect once he is confirmed as the president-elect. We're not there yet. And I think that's that's what's going to matter for Trump.
0: John, you raised the question of Clinton and Jones and the president's lack of immunity to uh, federal civil suits uh, in that case. Um, What about the president's immunity to civil suits in state courts? Uh, A New York state judge in 2018 rejected uh, President Trump's efforts to ban proceedings against him by a former Apprentice contestant, Summer Zervos. Uh, rejecting the president's argument that state courts are different than federal courts and that the president uh, was uh, amenable to civil suits in both. Uh, Do you think that the Zervos decision was correct uh, or not? And what are its implications?
1: You know, Trump is raising all these things which used to be hypotheticals in class. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I think this is – I, I, I think it goes to the same point. If you want to draw the um, point at which the uh, president's privileges and whether he has immunities and his or her rights for uh, confidentiality and, and they all have to do with when he or she takes office and leaves the office and their official actions or not. So I think that anything the president does before he's taken or she's taken the oath is not covered by privileges. And it's not covered by any kind of immunities. And I think things that the president does while in office, for example, writing checks to reimburse Michael Cohen for you know, allegedly illegal campaign contributions, I don't think those are in the president's public capacity. Those are the president in his uh, private, you know, his individual citizen capacity. I don't think those get protected by any kind of constitutional rights at all either. So I think uh, what the court, when it was faced with this question – with the Clinton versus Jones, what it tried, the battles it tried to strike was for these lawsuits that are going on while you're president, for things you did before you were in office, we're not going to, you know, the court says we're not going to stop them. All we can do is to, you know, we recognize, we acknowledge that presidents don't want to spend their time in office defending themselves from lawsuits, that uh, we are conscious. This is actually an interesting argument that Jefferson first raised during the Aaron Burr Conspiracy, he said. Well, if I'm subject to subpoenas and lawsuits, I can be. He said, I could be dragged from one end of the country to the other for the rest of my presidency uh, by people harassing me with lawsuits. <laughs> Funny thing is, a court back in Clinton versus Jones said, no, nah, that's never going to happen." <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but to the extent it could, the court said, uh, trial judges have to be sensitive and try to schedule, uh, use their power of the trial proceedings to schedule the cases so they don't interfere with the president's conduct of the job. So I could see a world where if, you know, suppose all these states, New York state, starts filing investigations and suits against Trump and private parties do so, and and it just becomes a flood of litigation. At some point, you could see the Supreme Court saying, this is getting to be too much. Regardless of the merits of the suit, the American people are being deserved by, uh, you know, having the presidency consumed with it being a defense bar. And so let's just postpone all the lawsuits until after Trump leaves office. Uh, I could easily see that happening given like – I think I think the court was probably wrong in Clinton versus Jones in saying that these lawsuits wouldn't interfere with the presidency. And now we're seeing a real mushrooming of these lawsuits. Uh, and I'm not saying this just to harass Trump. I mean a lot of it has to do with Trump's personal conduct, no, no doubt. But I think some of it also is probably politically motivated. And the Constitution is – you know it won't succeed if the President, because of the, as Steve mentioned, the framers did concentrate the executive power in this, you know one person. and so for good or ill, if you can interfere with that one person, you can bring much of the executive branch to a halt. And so I think the courts would be sensitive to that and try to postpone a lot of these cases till after Trump leaves office.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned the Jefferson case. I found the letter that you just alluded to. It was to George Hay Washington in 1807, and he said, as you suggested, would the executive be independent of the judiciary if the several courts could bandy him from pillar to post, keep him constantly trudging from north to south and east to west, and withdraw him entirely from his constitutional duties? Steve, do you agree with John or not that at some point a federal or state court say might say, hey, these suits are taking too much of the president's time. Uh, Clinton v. Jones uh, was wrong to predict the civil suit wouldn't take up too much time. As Justice Stevens said after the case, we didn't know that he would lie under oath. And do you uh, imagine that it's possible that a court might delay the suits in the interest of protecting the president's time and independence?
2: You know, I guess I, there's a lot there, Jeff. Let me let me try to unpack it. I mean, I think at, at a basic level, I actually don't think Clinton versus Jones is wrongly decided, um, that, you know, if we're going to draw a sharp distinction between the president and the conduct he undertakes within the outer perimeter of his official duties as president, and everything else that the one of the necessary implications of that is that he ought to be liable for the conduct that falls outside the outer perimeter of his official duties, which of course includes conduct that predates his tenure in office. Um, on the question that actually you know got this whole sort of chain going, which is um, you know whether Clinton versus Jones should apply in state court. I mean, first I should note. On March 14th uh, of this year, the appellate division um, for the first department of New York affirmed the trial court by a three to two votes. There's now actually an appellate decision on the books holding um, that a president can be sued in state court for stuff that happened before he was president. Jeff, I guess my gut reaction, and I wrote about this for, for in, an, in an op-ed for NBC after the trial court's ruling back in, in, I think it was late 2017. My gut reaction is that the, the question of whether Clinton versus Jones, assuming it's rightly decided should also apply in state court is really a question about the supremacy clause of the Constitution um, and whether this is one of those rare examples um, of – you know, a a lawsuit that the federal courts are allowed to hear but state courts are not. Um, There only really are a couple of examples, a writ of mandamus directed to a federal officer, a writ of habeas corpus directed to a federal jailer, Um, or whether, you know, there's reason to assume that if the state courts are getting it wrong and or mistreating a sitting president, um, he'll either have mechanisms for immediate appeal or he'll have a mechanism to remove the case to federal court. I mean, ever since, you know, before the Civil War. Federal law has provided for removal of cases from state court by any federal officer if he has any defense arising under any federal statute or the Constitution. So the only way that President Trump can't get these cases out of state court is if he has no federal claim, no federal objection to state court litigation. And so I guess I'm, I'm willing to sort of assume that until and unless there's some evidence that state courts are ruling in a way that's manifestly unfair to the president, that they're denying him federal claims to which he'd otherwise be entitled, that there's no reason not to allow the ordinary presumption that state courts can handle federal lawsuits; that state courts can handle these claims just as well as federal courts um, to go forward. Right? That there's no reason to sort of treat state courts differently. If, if instead, right, one is of the view that Clinton versus Jones is just wrongly decided, that's a different argument, and one we maybe ought to have. But so long as it's on the books, I just I don't I don't buy the supremacy clause argument for distinguishing state courts, and neither did a majority of the the appellate division, you know, earlier in March.
0: John. Um- I've heard a lot of agreement on this uh, podcast so far, although you've uh, had important uh, differences in nuance, um, w- with the exception of the question of whether executive privilege should protect the notes with uh, of the translator during the meeting with President Putin. Looking forward, what is the instance in clashes between the president, Congress, and the special prosecutor and the courts where you think executive privilege is most likely to succeed and should be most likely to succeed?
1: Well, I think uh, in any kind of impeachment investigation, uh, the House in particular is going to prosper all kinds of information involving Trump, contacts with Russians, contacts with other countries, contacts with all of these assorted figures – who uh, before his presidency, I think questionable character and conduct were surrounding him. So I think that the president's going to be most successful in trying to claim executive privilege against an impeachment investigation. Now that the Mueller investigation is wrapping up, it doesn't actually seem like Trump, as far as I can tell, invoked executive privilege against that. Maybe he didn't need to. But I, I, actually, I think if I remember, Trump ordered his subordinates to cooperate, and I think they all did. And so maybe he waived it for um, Mueller. But it's now going to the you know the form, the battlefield is going to shift now from Mueller to Congress, and so all these oversight hearings and ultimately, I think an impe- impeachment investigation that's going to be the demand. I think that's where Trump might be most successful. I think because a courts aren't going to want to get involved, particularly with A claim between Congress and the president when there's no individual liberty at stake as there were in, in, say, the Nixon case where it was actually the Watergate burglars who said they needed the documents to prove their innocence. Here it's just going to be can the Congress get that information out of Trump? And the more they press for uh, what communications have you had with Putin or what did you tell the attorney general? What did you say to Jeff Sessions when he was attorney general? I think those are going to be the areas where Trump will have more success. Uh, And I think that's where the other branches are going to have less power to succeed. I'm trying to remember now you think back to the Clinton investigations. Bill Clinton initially, I think, tried to invoke executive privilege. But in the end, against Ken Starr, he didn't. And then I don't think he claimed executive privilege against the uh, House and Senate, although they might not have needed it because they had the benefit of Starr's report, and they basically just, I think, kind of used that and didn't really conduct their own serious investigation beyond it. So this would be different in that uh, what the Congress, I think, would probably want to investigate would be things not necessarily covered by Mueller. They won't have a kind of roadmap or uh, document, so they're going to have to try to get the information for themselves. And I could easily see Trump ordering all of his aides just not to cooperate. And then Congress is going to be stuck with trying to get them held in contempt. And um, I'm afraid after the Obama and Bush years, that, uh, that has been shown not to be an effective remedy uh, if people in the executive branch refuse to cooperate with Congress.
0: Steve, if Congress attempts to uh, compel the testimony of President Trump's aides in a potential impeachment inquiry and Trump invokes executive privilege, uh, do you agree with John that that claim might and should succeed or not? And if not, why not?
2: I mean, I think you know this. This goes back to a point. I think the one point where John and I have really disagreed on on the podcast, which is I think it really depends on the specific case that Congress would make for overcoming executive privilege. I mean, insofar as the executive privilege. The Supreme Court recognized in Nixon as a qualified privilege. Presumably, something's doing the qualifying. Um, and you know, I actually, if I remember Nixon correctly, it wasn't that the defendants wanted the tapes; it was that the prosecutor um, Jaworski, Leon Jaworski, wanted the tapes, um, which of course is odd, Jeff, because we tend not to think about a prosecutor's right to potentially inculpatory evidence as opposed to defendants' right to exculpatory evidence. Why that matters is because you know I actually think in retrospect that was a relatively weak claim on the prosecutor's part compared to a claim from the House Judiciary Committee that it is essential in deciding whether to pursue articles of impeachment against the sitting president to have testimony on topics on which it already has at least some circumstantial evidence. Um, and so I don't think that a court would allow, say, the House Judiciary Committee to use it as a fishing expedition. Um, but I, you know, if if and when the rubber hits the road, and John's right, I mean this will take some time, and it could be that, you know, by the time this actually gets to the Supreme Court, the matter's mooted by the intervening presidential election. But Jeff, if the rubber really were to ever hit the road and you had an assertion of executive privilege in the face of a you know prima facie impeachment inquiry from the House Judiciary Committee. I don't think it's obvious that the president would win, um, and I don't think it would. Be, it's obvious that the president would win, especially in a case in which you know the the subpoena against which the privilege was being asserted um, looked like something more than just a fishing expedition. It looked like it was actually trying to corroborate evidence that was already on the book. So I guess it's just you know maybe I'm more um, maybe I see the world through more rose-colored glasses than John does. Maybe I'm just more optimistic about the courts than John is. But you know I think it's telling. That in 45 years, the Supreme Court has never really come back to the scope of the privilege it recognized in Nixon. And I think if and when it had to, in the context of impeachment, I mean, it's hard to imagine a more compelling case for overcoming the qualified executive privilege the court has recognized then Congress acting pursuant to its constitutional authority to impeach the president, um, trying to make sure it has, you know, the evidence, evidence to justify such a, a drastic but constitutionally available measure.
0: Wonderful. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely illuminating debate, and let's focus on this final and important area of uh, potential disagreement. John… If the President invokes qualified executive privilege in a potential impeachment proceeding, why do you think that it is important under the Constitution that it should succeed?
1: Well, first, I think because depending on what it is he's claiming privilege over, I suppose it's his direct communications with Putin or direct communications with his cabinet members. Uh, I think that uh, Nixon was right that in order for the presidency, to operate effectively, for us to have uh, decision-making, the kind we want where everyone gets options considered and even outside the box things without regard to their political consequences in order to have candor in the executive branch. I think the president needs to have his conversations protected just the way we would want Supreme Court justices to be able to speak to their clerks in confidence or the way uh, senators should be able to speak, I think, to their chief of staffs in confidence. If once the those are, if those are all out in the open, you're going to have risk averse conversations where people worry about what's going to be said, and you're not going to have the kind of clear and open decision making we would want. Uh, the second uh, reason I think it would win is because I don't think courts would get involved. I'm sure people would want to drag the courts into it. I got to think this is really if there's going to be a political question re- doctrine recognized by the courts, it's going to be fight between the president and Congress about what information the president has to hand over to Congress. That doesn't mean Congress couldn't force it out some other way. Uh, You know, they could even say, oh, we're going to take it as a default. If you don't give us the information, we're just going to automatically impeach you. You know, that was discussed during the Clinton years, uh, during the Clinton impeachment too. But I, uh, short of, you know, a political settlement where the president chooses voluntarily to hand it over, I don't think Congress really has the tools to force it out of the executive branch. So I would expect, actually, Trump would win, even though personally I would say it would be in Trump's political advantage to let it all out. But uh, unfortunately, presidents never seem to understand that it's important to get all the information out rather than having what appears to be a
0: cover-up. Steve, the last word is to you. If the president were to invoke qualified executive privilege in a potential impeachment proceeding under what circumstances and why do you think it should not succeed under the Constitution?
2: Well, I mean, Jeff, I, I go back to, to something we were talking about earlier, which is in a world in which you know there are plenty of folks, including the Justice Department, who take the position that a sitting president cannot be indicted, um, the necessary implication of that view is that impeachment is the one and only remedy for um, basically going after a sitting president for malfeasance. And I think so long as that is the view that is prevailing within the government itself, um, something that has to come with that is a view that Congress's impeachment power is, you know, one of its most important constitutional functions, and is at least on par with the president's. A-textual entitlement to the confidentiality of his internal communications. So, you know, I, I certainly agree with John that courts are going to be reluctant to get into the middle of this. I think, you know, Congress itself might be reluctant to force the issue and might try every other means at its disposal to get this information out of the executive branch before, you know, coming to blows over this. But... In, you know, the the last time the Supreme Court addressed the political question doctrine was in its 2012 decision in the Zivotosky case, and you know, Chief Justice Roberts, there writing for an eight to one court, said, you know, when there's a dispute between Congress and the President over whether something Congress did is constitutional, um, that may be political, but it's not a political question. It's, I think, he literally said, "This is what we do," referring to the Supreme Court. And so, I think if the, if it came down to you know an impeachment investigation where Congress had you know plausible grounds to be pursuing this evidence from the executive and the president was refusing to turn it over. I guess I just I, I hold out hope that the Supreme Court, if faced with that case, in a proper vehicle, would say that Congress's constitutional authority to impeach the president takes precedence over the qualified privilege that the Supreme Court had read into, but is not provided by the plain text of Article Two. Because otherwise, it seems to me that impeachment is an empty shell, um, and that the only time you'll ever be able to impeach a president is when there's an existing record that's not, you know, evidence within the executive branch of something he did that was blatantly inappropriate and worthy of removal. So, you know, I hope. Well, I guess I, I just I hope that courts would side with Congress when it came to such a sort of straight on head on clash. But Jeff, I think the most important point to take away from this whole thing is I, I don't think we'll ever get there. Um, that is to say, you know, I think Congress and especially the, the current House um, is not going to want to force that issue when there are so many other softer means at its disposal for, you know basically creating incentives um, for executive branch compliance. To the point where I think it would be very hard, you know, for President Trump to resist at least most of what Congress is going to be seeking. Um uh, then the question becomes: How quickly could this happen? I mean, you know, is this is there a chance that this all that 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 the current house is able to get everything it wants between now and you know next November? Um, that's where I think you know the president might be trying to sort of play out the string. That's where he actually might want this stuff to go to the courts because then he can slow it down. Um, versus Congress say you know threatening to defund various aspects of the executive branch if they don't comply with the subpoena requests. So Jeff, I think it's all still to play for. It's just not clear to me at the end of the day that this is gonna end up with a Supreme Court decision or that if it does end up with a Supreme Court decision, that the court's necessarily gonna side with the president.
0: Thank you so much, John Yu and Steve Loddick, for a nuanced, illuminating, and extremely educational discussion of the Constitution and executive privilege. You have uh, illuminated areas of agreement and disagreement in the best tradition of the We the People podcast, and it's always a pleasure to have you both. John, Steve, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Greg Scheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Uh, if you want some homework of the week, please read United States versus Nixon. Familiarize yourself about the scope of executive privilege. And for extra credit, read up on President Jefferson's clash with Chief Justice John Marshall. And that great letter I mentioned uh, is to George Hay, Washington, June twentieth, eighteen 1807. Uh, check it out. Always, please, dear We the People listeners, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend our show to friends and colleagues and anyone who is hungry for constitutional light. And always remember, as you wake, and as you sleep, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion for lifelong learning of people like you from across the country who are determined to cultivate your faculties of reason and to listen to the best arguments on all sides of our current constitutional debates so you can make up your own mind. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.